Is Bidenomics a success? What happened to Ron DeSantis? And can we save men? We'll discuss all this more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, the dominator, Dominic Pino, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Tommy John and Made in Cookware. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Dominic, you are the economics maven among us. You got a good inflation report a day or two ago, leading to a lot of the spiking of footballs in the end zone over Bidenomics is Bidenomics now been proven a success. I guess part of the problem, Rich, is that we're in an environment where we're paying attention to the inflation report. Um, (laughs) It wasn't that long ago that we all knew that the inflation report was going to be fine and nobody really cared about it because uh, inflation stuck around 2% for roughly 40 years. Um, It was not until uh, the Biden administration, well, not until until the pandemic, but then obviously um, the Biden administration made things worse. Uh, by supporting the American Rescue Plan Act, which was a $2 trillion spending bill that we did not need, that even some left-wing economists warned would be inflationary, that made a job that was already difficult for the Fed uh, in responding to uh, the pandemic disruptions even harder by um, sort of uh, flooding the economy with lots more money. And and now uh, we've had 500 basis points of interest rate hikes in order to respond to that. Uh, mortgage rates are up around 7%, highest they've been in decades. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't be uh, spiking the football about this situation. Um, this does not seem to be a great thing. Um, if we want to uh, if we want to say that things aren't as bad as they were a year ago, that's true. Um, you know, energy prices peaked a year ago. Uh, this summer, uh, or, or last summer, or about this time, was uh, sort of the high point of gasoline prices. Uh, we've we've come down from that, but gasoline prices are still over a dollar higher than they were before uh, President Biden took office. Now, obviously, he's not responsible for the price of gasoline. There's lots of things that go into that, but Americans are still feeling the effects of of higher prices and the accumulation of the inflation that we've seen, even though the rate of inflation is now lower than it was. So MBD, just in sheer political terms, will the Biden team be able to make this Bidenomics argument stick and get traction for the idea that this is, this is he's been a wonderful economic manager if we're going to get a soft landing, which is possible? Uh, I don't know that they're going to be able to make it stick precisely just because of the the very thing Dominic pointed to, which was the accumulation of inflation over time, which has, you know, absolutely dampened the economic mood popularly, right? Even though th- all the other numbers, I actually think uh, the, the employment number, um, you know, despite the Fed hiking rates and even at times even seeking like it was wanting to start a minor recession and a minor bloodletting in the labor market um, didn't come about. And um, 
you know, I th like personally, like I think this is a, this already is kind of a soft landing. Uh, if this is where we land, um, and I am remarkably relieved that the pain post pandemic hasn't been much, much worse than it has been after we embarked on what may be the greatest experiment, experimental policy gesture in a hundred years, basically putting everyone off work for a few weeks or months and paying them to do so. Um, so like personally, I am amazed we're, we're at where we are, but the American public themselves, I think they're still pretty cheesed off that their grocery bill, their gas bill, um, and every other bill seems to be going up, uh, and hasn't stopped going up. Yeah. So Charlie, one, one common argument on the left is those people who are cheesed off as MBD puts it are irrational. You look at the numbers, low unemployment and inflation now is uh, reducing and getting to a more normal place. So what are these people complaining about? Well, there's a lot wrong with that. First off, it would have been better if this hadn't happened in the first place. And there is no doubt, however long it takes to come out of it, that we entered a period of sustained inflation, in part because the President of the United States and his party flooded the country with cash. It's not me speculating. This has been the conclusion of many massive financial institutions. So what are those people supposed to be grateful that that inflation lasted less time than it could have? Are they not supposed to notice that President Biden built on some mistakes made by President Trump in the previous Congress and made things worse? I don't think that's reasonable. It's also worth pointing out that there is still a high likelihood that we're going to go into a recession. It's possible we don't, I suppose. But nearly half of Americans think we're in one already. A lot of the rest are worried that it's coming at the end of this year or next year. And they're going to act accordingly. I don't think... I can remember a time when things are better than you think they are works mm -hmm. politically. Yeah, never. I can remember in 2018, 2019, when Americans thought the economy was fantastic. I think consumer confidence was higher than it had been for decades. I think by many metrics, the economy was as good as it had been since 1969. The press tried to make it seem as if the opposite was true. And I remember writing at the time that that's not going to work. People, by and large, are aware of their own situations. Now, that doesn't mean that people are always rational, and it doesn't mean that people are always right. But I don't think that the irritation with the Biden administration and the general sense that the last year or so has been a lot worse than it could have been 
I don't think that the 12-point advantage the Republicans have on economic questions, I don't think that the fear of inflation, I don't think that the fear of a recession are unsubstantiated. And, you know, you mentioned unemployment. It is true that the employment rate is positive. That is really good about our economy right now. But if that part of the equation were to disappear clearly we would be in trouble because that is the thing that people keep pointing to. That is the one confounding factor that has confused people. I don't know as much about this as Dominic does, but I do read economists and they essentially are saying at the moment, we're confused because there's lots of signs. There's the it's called the inverted yield curve <laughs> uh, that has predicted every recession that hasn't been this inverted for 40 years. This is something that Charlie and I bonded on recently is not understanding the, the inverted yield curve. Right. And, but I can and, read and a, David Bonds is listening right now and pulling his hair out. <laughs> what, what, who are these but I can read a chart that shows the correlation. And, you know, they will say, but look at employment. It's really good. So... You know, I think the idea that everything is is hunky-dory, and I would also point out to finish that a good number of the people who are talking like this also got the last few years really wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? They said, don't worry, there won't be inflation, or it'll be transitory. They said, don't worry about the debt. Now, Annie Lowry in The Atlantic is saying, turns out the debt mattered after all. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So they don't get to lecture Americans on... Yeah, and obviously another factor driving the public discontent is the fact that real wages have been declining for about two years straight now. So Dominic Charlie mentioned the Republican advantage in polling on the economy. Do do Republicans have an alternative, well, well thought out and articulated economic vision? And if so, what is it? They should. They should put some effort into coming up with one. I mean – uh, I do think they have one, which uh, I think Matthew Continetti laid out pretty well in the most recent print issue, which is uh, with his piece called Supply Side Still. Um, I think, you know, in an, in an economy where um, supply side constraints are driving up prices, where out of control government spending is uh, creating uh, demand shocks, um, the answer is, you know, uh, a, a more responsible uh, a fiscal policy and uh, a um, and in uh, removing uh, restrictions that prevent Americans from from producing more, and so uh, there's 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 that case. It's right there. It's ready to be made. Um, it plays well with voters who are concerned about uh, the ability of government to uh, execute <laughs> execute programs effectively. I mean, I think there's. Uh, real discontent um, among people uh, as it relates to the federal government's ability to do the things it has promised to do, um, and uh, I think there's a there's a good a good case to be made that uh, you know uh, we don't have to trust we don't have to trust the trust trust the government to to do the right thing uh, if we let uh, creative people in in this country um, um, and do what they do, invent new stuff, innovate, and also employ lots and lots of people uh, in order to make that happen. And so 
I, I think there's uh, I think there's there's plenty of good case to be made there. I, I think you know nominating Donald Trump causes some problems with that because uh, Bidenomics and Trumponomics, at least campaign trail Trumponomics, is is rather similar to to Bidenomics. Um, it's uh, and what the protectionism, protectionism, the, uh, the, the made in America emphasis, uh-huh. not not caring about the deficit. Uh-huh. Yeah. The same we need to protect entitlements. What yep. else? I mean, it's it's almost identical. Now, when Trump was actually in office, uh, he didn't do a lot of that stuff. Um, he, you know, he did he did some of the protectionism things, and the Biden administration has basically continued his mm-hmm. his his yeah, uh, trade policy. But um, you know, when he was actually in office, he did a lot more uh, good free market stuff. Uh, but yeah, the way he talks on the campaign trail is, is almost identical to a lot of things Biden says on economics. And so I think it would be really good for Republicans to prevent, uh, present the voters with a contrast there, not an, not an echo. May I just add something to that? The Republican Party is, of course, imperfect on economic policy and often hypocritical. It habitually spends too much when in charge of Congress and forgets about its concerns about the debt and the deficit and so forth. And I am routinely critical of it on those grounds. But one of the slogans that I've started to hear from the left is that no is not an economic policy. And it absolutely is. It absolutely is an economic policy. Saying no to what Joe Biden wanted to do with Build Back Better was an economic policy and deserves to be applauded and appreciated, and to have yielded that 12-point advantage. Saying, no, we are not going to flood the economy with more money after having done this in an emergency for a year, is an economic policy. In fact, typically, you can prevent much more damage than you can create good outcomes. You are much more likely, as a party, as a government, as a president and a congress, to be able to do good by saying no in economic terms than you are, you know, we say, oh, this president created this many jobs. No, he didn't. There are a couple of circumstances in history in which economic policy really mattered. I think the tax cuts in the 1980s really mattered. I think TARP really mattered in the end of the 2000s. Obviously, there are some measures in the New Deal that made a difference for better or for worse. But usually that's not the case. But saying no actually does make a huge difference. And, you know, no isn't a a policy. No isn't an approach. Yes, it is. And this Congress has been good at saying no. Republicans, although they lost, were good at saying no to the American Rescue Plan, so-called, and the Inflation Reduction Act and all of that. And they ought to be praised for it. MBDX, a question to you. There will be a recession sometime this year or next yes or oh, no oh come on rich this is nah, weather long jeez i mean listen I, th- I i i thought things would be worse than they are than they are currently just because i thought our policies were so crazed in the last half decade um but right now i'm i'm wondering if somehow by accident we've landed in the right spot and there won't be, uh, there won't be one. Charlie. No, you're on the record. Not now, Michael. Yeah. It's too late. <laughs> I think we're going to go to a recession before the next presidential election. The question is 
whether it is a big enough recession to affect our politics. The best case scenario for the president, because voters do think like this even when they shouldn't, is that it is a recession in name only, a rhino. The (laughs) worst case scenario is that employment ceases to be the one bright spot. The inverted yield curve is batting a thousand and next summer what we're talking about is how much damage will be done to the economy before november all right dominic you have a tie which you can break at least for the moment um well first of all uh it's smart economics to never make predictions especially about the future but i would say that uh i'm gonna say no but not because it's gonna be great uh because i think um we could see something sort of similar to stagflation where it never quite goes into recession, but it's just kind of hanging mm-hmm. around zero and uh, or GDP growth is just kind of hanging around zero. And, um, uh, and I still think uh, it's going to take a little bit more to get that kind of last two percentage points out of inflation. Um, and I think the, 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 the feds, um, uh, the fed still has a little bit more work to do there. Hey, Dominic, which is worse? A recession that lasts six months to a year or stagflation? Uh, I would say stagflation um, just because, uh, you know, just the kind of uh, malaise point that you can have like like the United States did in, in the 1970s. where They're not, necessar- not, not necessarily mutually exclusive, right? You can have a, a mild recession that bounces back into stagflation. Sure, yeah, or, or you can. The sort of weird thing you know, about the United States economic history, though, is that we usually go big or go home when it comes to recessions, uh, mm-hmm. whereas lots mm-hmm. of other countries have mild recessions that are um, mm-hmm. not that big of a deal. Whereas in the U.S., when we have a recession, we, we really have a recession. So, but, but in a sense, we kind of had one in 2020. I mean, when we yes. shut down, mm-hmm. we ha- we initiated this massive immediate recession that wiped out tons of businesses that were on the edge already, despite the assistance. And people made all sorts of new arrangements in their life that they would typically make during a normal recession, right? Like they left the workforce permanently or moved to a new state. You know, so like that's why I've kind of come around to this idea that maybe we're not going to get one right now and we're going to get this just kind of stagnant, you know, ugly, uh, an unexciting, you know, semi bear market, you know, like yeah. it's not neither, uh, you know, neither lukewarm, you know? Yeah. So I'm going to say we, we are going to have a recession and my guess, whatever it's worth, none of this is worth much. It'll be, a relatively mild one. With that, let's stop and hear from our first sponsor. This episode, Tommy John Underwear. Guys, are you in a sticky situation right now? As summer heats up, it will only get worse. Tommy John Underwear is the cooling solution to sticky situations. When you wear Tommy John, you're that much more comfortable, so you can do everything better. Tommy John Underwear has dozens of comfort innovations. Like breathable, lightweight, moisture-wicking fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands that can keep you seven degrees cooler. 
than cotton. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys across America love their Tommy Johns because there's no flopping, sticking, or chafing. That's why Tommy John doesn't have customers. They have fanatics. One Tommy John fanatic raves, quote, the most comfortable boxer briefs ever. There's no downside. Buy one pair and you'll never want to wear any other underwear again. You can bet your bottom dollar you're always covered by Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee. So right now, shop Tommy John's Summer Collection. Get 20% off your first order at TommyJohn.com slash editor. Save 20% right now at TommyJohn.com slash editor. See the site for details. So MBD, we've had a lot of conversation about the Ron DeSantis stall, which is the, the word everyone is using now. I actually think it's a Appropriate one. It hasn't been a, a, a free fall. He's stabilized at about 22% or so on average in national polls, you know, which is 30 points behind, give or take. Donald Trump, what do you make of it? Uh, I don't make a ton of it uh, because I think uh, a lot of people aren't tuned in yet. Um, and I, like a lot of the commentary on why DeSantis has stalled just seems like people grasping at straws. Like, you know, there's a, a article the other day, I think from ABC or NBC saying, Oh, like the DeSantis campaign writes a memo to shaky donors about, you know, this uncertain campaign. And it's like, there was nothing in the memo that indicated a major course change, a major rethinking or expressed any panic at all. It was just, this is our strategy going forward. Um, and when DeSantis gives an answer on Ukraine that people think isn't, you know, that people who work in think tanks or at magazines think isn't up to snuff, they say, oh, this is why he's stalling. But meanwhile, none of the candidates who are giving the answers think tankers want to hear on Ukraine are taking off. So I just think nobody is especially tuned in. They're waiting, I, I think everyone is waiting on the accumulation of indictments and scandal on Trump and then waiting for actual conflict between candidates on a stage, um, which we'll get in August. And before that, I think it's going to be very hard for people to tune in. And again, I think uh, a lot of these national polls you know, the results can disappear almost instantly after an Iowa result where things get shaken up and then you get a, another shake of the, of the die in New Hampshire. And that's what we're waiting for. Now, uh, the only other thing is, I mean, the DeSantis campaign has, re has raised a ton of money and that money is going to serve it well when it goes into those states and it's not blowing that money early the way the Jeb Bush campaign did. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I don't think he's repeating those same mistakes that other lavishly funded governor gubernatorial campaigns that, that blew up uh, at the presidential level did before. So I'm still yeah, waiting so, so, to see, guy. Wait and see. Yeah. Yeah, so, so Charlie, I don't think anything MBD says is crazy or wrong. I don't think DeSantis is Scott Walker because he's not going to run out of money, as MBD just referred to. I don't think it's Jeb Bush because Jeb would, you know, hadn't, hadn't run for 10 years or whatever it was and was clearly out of step with where the party was. That's not true. 
of DeSantis, but you know, the worry would be, ah, you know, we, we've, we've sat in this podcast for months. He's not in the race yet. That's why it's not a fair test. Wait till he's in the race. Then you can, then you can see, you know, wh- wh- where they really stand. Now he's in the race. And we're saying, oh, you know, it's early in the race. There's still other, other things to happen in the race, which is, which is true. But um, it's, uh, you, you worry, you know, it'll be February. It's like, oh, it was just Iowa. You know, he just lost Iowa. I, obviously, that would be uh, an inflection point. But um, there, there, wasn't, there wasn't a bounce from his announcement. And that's not the end of DeSantis, but it's not a great sign either. Yes, I think Donald Trump's winning by quite a lot. And I don't know how much the rest of it matters at the moment because Donald Trump is winning by quite a lot. If Donald Trump weren't in the race, then I think DeSantis would probably be winning. But Donald Trump is in the race, so he's not. I think there is one caveat to that fairly depressing augury, and that is that while Donald Trump is clearly winning by a lot, he does seem to be making some mistakes in Iowa. The Mm -hmm. decision to send or try to send J.D. Vance in his stead to Bob Vanderplatz's meeting strikes me as a big mistake for a couple of reasons. First, because I really can see another candidate winning in Iowa. Second, because as Michael says, another candidate winning in Iowa could change the race. Mm -hmm. It won't necessarily. There's still a lot of states in which Donald Trump is coasting, his national polling is very good. But Yeah, but we, we can say if, if Trump wins Iowa, it's probably over. Right. So I do think there's some distance to go. But I have come to the view that he is a real front runner, not a Jeb Bush front runner. And that the vast majority of the analysis of how the other candidates are doing is irrelevant because at the moment there is just a reflexive support for Donald Trump that seems hard to shift. Is important. It's a, a key calling card for him. But you know, we're, as we were talking about uh, the, the the prior segment, you know, Republicans need an economic policy, and it's not clear. Although you know, DeSantis had one in Florida, he hasn't really enunciated one as a, a national candidate. Yeah, this is a problem with DeSantis that Charlie has pointed out before, which is that in uh, in Florida, a lot of the economic policy is just on autopilot because they don't have an income tax. Um, they have. Uh, uh, pretty pretty low uh, levels of regulation um, and so he can just kind of say yeah well we'll just keep keep doing that he doesn't have to make an argument for it right and so 
Um, now that he's on the national campaign level, he does have to make an argument for it, and 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 uh, it has been more difficult to uh, hear him make that. Um, he has a great story to tell about Florida. Uh, Florida's doing well, uh, and um, and he's been a good governor there. Um, I think part of the problem, uh, like you said, I mean, if he if he's going to win, it's going to be on 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 a message, and um, I'm having a hard time figuring out what the message of his campaign is. I'm hearing lots of messages, right? He's he's the uh, successful governor of a of a growing uh, big state. He is the culture warrior. He is Trump without the uh, without the bad character. He is um uh you know the uh you know the the good the good family man with uh with with you know uh, with a great uh with um uh you know with his kids on the campaign trail and his wife on the campaign trail and all that's wonderful it's just i think it's a lot and i don't think voters have like one thing in mind of like okay a vote for ron DeSantis is a vote for this and um I think that's. I think they still have time to define that. Uh, you know, it is. Uh, you know, to the extent that they are saying it's still early. I mean, it is. It is still early, and it is true. You know, the sort of media narrative that he's collapsing is just not right. Right. I mean, he's he's perfectly stagnant. I mean, he's been completely consistent basically ever since he got in the race. He is right at the same same level. So, uh, maintaining that level of support for months now is 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 notable um but yeah you know he needs to he needs to beat trump and then as it comes to uh you know the the question about iowa and the other early states you know it is worth remembering that trump didn't win iowa in 2016 um and romney didn't win iowa and john mccain didn't win iowa Mm -hmm. so um so that's an important thing to keep in mind and then also uh, i think south carolina is going to be a really interesting state because it's close to Florida. It has kind of a similar Republican electorate to Florida, um, and so uh, it should be something that uh, uh, that uh, that should uh, play well for DeSantis, no matter what happens in in New Hampshire. And um, I, I think that will really be the test, you know, if if uh, if uh, if Iowa doesn't doesn't go his way. Yeah, so the, the stance people tend to think the the electorates that'll be more favorable to them, it tracks with levels of college education and levels of church attendance. MBD, I ask a question to you, and maybe this this is more uh, uh, ple- pleasing to you than than the, the the prior one, which I understand your objection to. So I, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna um, make um, three predictions about the upcoming debate, which is about a um, a month from now, and you can. Uh, agree, disagree, add your own predictions. But I would say three. One, Trump will not show up. You know, Chris Christie, who qu- has qualified, is kind of trying to taunt him to, to show up. I don't think he will. I think Christie will be out to maul Ron DeSantis and will end up scoring points against DeSantis that hurt DeSantis and that Vivek Ramaswamy will have a good debate and gain from the debate. Agree, disagree, take it wherever you want. Ooh, um, I, I think, no, I don't think Christie's going to take a lot out of DeSantis in the debate, though I think he will go after him as well as Trump. I do think, um, I do think Vivek can help himself in a debate and so can, um, 
Tim Scott. Scott? Yeah, I think mm-hmm. I think both those guys can help. You know, just being on the stage will help. I, I first of all, I think being on the stage will help everyone uh, because this this is sort of telling the public these are the contenders. They've been qualified to get on this stage, and they're submitting themselves for your consideration. And it will hurt Trump that he's not there. That's that's my prediction. And you think he won't be there? He won't be there, and it will hurt him, and then he'll eventually have to start getting into these. Yeah, so, so underlining the point Charlie made about Trump, Trump's missteps in Iowa, one thing that could be his un, undoing or contribute to his undoing if there's ever an undoing would, would be, I think, the high-handedness and, and arrogance not showing up for this debate would, would uh, is obviously part of that theme. So, Charlie, the, those three propositions, what, what do you think? Well, I think Trump won't show up. I think that could hurt him, but it will only hurt him if the other candidates are prepared to make the case that you just adumbrated, which is that he's being arrogant and high-handed and thinks he's better than you. And to do that, you have to go after him. You can't say, oh, well, he was a good president and I wasn't there on January 6th and I don't know. You have to say, I'm running for your vote and he's not. And you have to look right at the camera and do it. I assume someone on the stage is going to do that, but if they don't, then Trump will get away with it because what he'll do is he will find some willing media partner to put on some fake, you know, charity debate for disabled kids or something. And we'll learn seven months later that the disabled kids didn't get the money, but Trump will take up the media airtime. I don't think Vivek Ramaswamy is going to help himself a great deal because I think the guy is a smarmy fraud. And I do think Chris Christie is going to hurt DeSantis unless DeSantis is really well prepared. Chris Christie is a wrecking ball and he dislikes DeSantis almost as much as he dislikes Trump. That much is obvious. And he won't be able to help himself once he's on the stage. He may think he's going in there to lay waste to Trump, but especially if Trump isn't there, he's going to respond to whatever is said. He's going to throw things at whichever target presents itself to him. DeSantis is going to be right there. Christie's going to go after him. DeSantis needs to be much better prepared for it than Marco Rubio was in 2016. Dominic. I think uh, I think you're right that Trump would be, or I think you and Michael are right that that Trump would be um, ill-advised to skip uh, Iowa, and I don't think it's going to help him there. Um, you mean skip the debate? Yes, yes, to skip the debate. Um, I don't think that's going to help him him in Iowa. Um, I think it's going to come across as arrogant. But I also agree with Charlie that the other candidates actually have to make that case. And if we have a situation where, you know, also Rands are attacking other also rans it's just it's just going to be a complete waste um and if that situation happens i don't think the polling is really going to move at all i think you're going to have a situation where everything just continues to stay stagnant you've got trump hanging around 45 or 50 percent you've got DeSantis hanging around 20 percent and everybody else in in single digits um but uh and uh i agree with charlie i don't think there's any possible way vivek is going to um is going to do well um, I think he's uh, him and a couple of the others, uh, you know, Francis Suarez now and um, Doug Burgum are really showing how ridiculous primary politics are becoming with their giveaways to donors. 
um, in order to get them to the 40,000 unique donor requirement that the RNC made for uh, for debate participation. I think that was a bad idea by the RNC, and I think um, we're seeing the them responding to this to this poor incentive. And I I don't think voters are going to take it very seriously. So I, I don't think it's going to uh, uh, I don't think it's going to go well. All right. Well, let's hear from our second sponsor of this episode, Made In Cook, where we have Made In frying pans in the Lowry Kitchen, and they are awesome. Made In was created by a 100-year-old family business specializing in high-end restaurant supply. It works with celebrated chefs and expert artisans to craft elegant, professional-quality cookware for restaurant and home kitchens alike. Your best meals are ahead of you with artisan-made, restaurant-quality cookware. Made In's award-winning nonstick cookware has a double layer of professional-grade nonstick coating. Its stainless clad is nearly indestructible and has unparalleled heat retention, making for even heat distribution. We found all this to be true. Our made-in pans are great to handle, cook evenly, and very importantly, they are easy to clean. I say this as a guy who can spend an hour a night at the sink cleaning dishes. So made-in cookware gets our highest recommendation, and especially my wife's recommendation, which is more important than mine. And right now, editors, listeners can get 10% off full-priced items on orders of $100 or more from made-in. For full details, visit madeincookware.com slash editors. That's madeincookware.com slash editors. So MBD, we have this debate on masculinity going on in this country. We had the Josh Hawley speech, I don't know, a year or two ago at NatCon that got uh, some uh, attention, understandably, about masculinity and the assault on it. We have this Richard Reeves book Mm -hmm. on um, boys and men that generated a lot of attention. And then a couple days ago, we had Christine Emba, a opinion writer at the Washington Post, pretty much a, a standard progressive as far as I can tell writing a long piece about, you know what, there is a problem with masculinity and boys and young men are adrift and this is a problem that progressives shouldn't be dismissive of, although we obviously don't want to denigrate women. What do you make of it? Well, they're all right in their ways. I mean, the the stats are very obvious that uh, women are succeeding, uh, especially at school, um, where men are not, um, that basically for every seven, uh, male college graduates, I think there's now 10, uh, female college graduates. Uh, this is having all sorts of, uh, interesting and still unremarked upon effects on the matchmaking market in, in the United States and, and our ability to form families. Uh, that I think it's harder for people to be honest about, um, you know, than, than the top line stats about male depression or male suicide, um, or, or just male achievement, uh, in the marketplace. And, um, so it's very real. I was struck though by Emba still, I, I recommend everyone read her piece in the Washington post if you have time for it. Um, but she frames the, the issue interestingly, saying that basically, well, there's been this fem- this sexual revolution and the feminist ascent, and we've spent 40 years talking about women and their changing role and their place, and women have gotten ahead, and we haven't really talked about how men fit into this new world. And that's very much, you know, part of the problem. But very interestingly, one thing she never comes around to mention is fatherlessness. 
right? Is that mm-hmm. so many young it's men? Male, it's male role models. Yeah. <laughs> As though you know, your basketball coach can be a substitute. Yeah. I mean, she talks about like, you know, she spends a lot of the piece talking about like, the, you know, Jordan Peterson and Josh Hawley or Andrew Tate or these online influencers, you know, even bronze age pervert um, who are stepping in and it's like, but she doesn't mention the vacuum that they're stepping into, right? That, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, that men, not all fathers are great, but they do provide positive or negative examples against which sons can begin to mm-hmm. measure themselves uh, and find some comfort uh, in the, in their adult lives, right? Having observed their father, uh, having uh, admired their father as a man, even if in a complicated way, um, they them seeing anything of their father in themselves as an adult would 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 ease this transition a bit. Um, so I was kind of amazed that that didn't come up. Um, I'm also very concerned about the crisis of, of men. I think it's socially deranging. I mean, a ton of our mm-hmm. our problems in the United States are are down to men not participating in the labor force, men uh, who are not participating in social life uh, to a huge degree. Um, you know, Nicholas Eberstadt's research shows that a ton of men are just sitting behind screens, kind of hiding hiding from life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that passivity is bad for the country. Um, and it's also bad for women, uh, because that's, those, those are not the kind of men that women want to be with. And, um, you know, anecdotally, uh, like a lot of successful women believe that they deserve to be with an even more successful man. And mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. going to absolutely cripple, you know, the marriage process for women, uh, if, you know, we've created an economy where women are far more likely to be higher earners until you get up to the very, very top echelon, where then suddenly men jump out again. Uh, but again, that, that could that could end very soon, too. You know, if you look at the distribution of business and law degrees that have been coming out in the last 10 years and that are likely to come out in the next 20 I mean, we really could see men dethroned from the top spots uh, in business and politics, too. Um, yes, yeah, so Charlie, another feature of this Emba piece is she says we, we need this new model of masculinity without really outlining what it would be. And any new model of masculinity to actually connect with, with men and, and be at all plausible is going to have to be closely related, if not indistinguishable, from the, the old model of masculinity. Now, obviously, societies change, and, and the way we want men to act is going to be different than you know the Vikings did. But there, there are certain things that are just baked in the cake and have to be uh, it, it accepted and celebrated. Well, so that was the one part of the piece that I particularly disliked. Not just because it didn't outline an alternative, but because it implied that masculinity as a concept is infinitely malleable, and it's not. I will say, whenever asked that human nature doesn't change, I don't think masculinity does either. I think what is acceptable and tolerated in our society does but I don't think masculinity does. And if I can borrow from Camille Parlier, we need men who behave like Vikings sometimes. 
Mm-hmm. That's who we want our police officers to be. Yeah. That's who we want our fathers to be if anyone threatens their children. And that's sure as hell who we want our soldiers to be. And heaven forfend that we end up in some sort of massive war with China. You're going to want American men to be Vikings for a while. Now, no, you don't mm-hmm. want them to behave like that at home or with their wives or children or people on the street. Of course, I'm pro-civilization. But masculinity is not something that you can just mold like clay. This is something that needs to be controlled. There is a little bit of truth, although it is always misapplied in the phrase, teach men not to rape. Yes, teach men not to rape. Don't remove their uh, masculinity completely. I I think what bothers me about some of the anti-men movements that we have seen is that they are just that. They are anti-men. And I draw this distinction because progressives will often say that anyone who complains about this or writes about it or thinks about it is worried about their loss of status and that that loss of status has been caused by the rise of others. In other words, they will say that anyone who worries about the way that men are depicted or treated is actually upset that women are now put on an equal footing. And I think that's wrong. I'm sure there are some people who think like that. But I think that's wrong because there is a massive difference between saying women should be equal, which is something I believe very strongly, and saying men suck. The vast majority of people think women should be equal and they're right. That means treating them equally under the law. It means the 19th Amendment. It means saying if they want to work, great. That is a different thing than saying men are bad. And I don't think you can exist in America at the moment without having heard someone in Hollywood or academia or the press say, you know what the problem with this country is? It's white men. We hear it all the time. Mm -hmm. White men, white men, white men did this, white men did that. That is bad. Saying everyone should be equal is good. Saying white men are no better than black men, good. Saying white men are no better than white women, good. Saying we should all be judged on the basis of the color of our skin, uh, uh, our character, not the color of our skin, is good. But some of the, some of the anti-men <laughs> sentiment that you hear is not good. And t- to me, that's the thing that needs addressing, not uh, some sort of reversion. You know, I-, I have no time for the revanchists on the right who think that the-, the best time in American history was 1955. It wasn't. Not if you were black. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not if you were a woman. But that doesn't mean you go in the other direction. Um, and, and you know, to me, that's the bit that, that bothers me. And I don't think Christian Ember meant it like this because I think she's a very nice person. Um, but when you say, well, we need to change men, we need to change masculinity, we need to replace it with something else, that actually is a, a, a criticism, not a call for equality. So, Dominic, one of the ironies in this whole situation, this debate, is for, you know, like last 20 or 30 years, there's been a focus on a supposed assault on, on women, a crisis among women. Our, our friend and sometimes colleague, Christina Hoff Summers, was totally prophetic on this, writing very powerfully, pushing against this tide. No, we, we don't have a, a girl's crisis. We have a boy's crisis. And, you know, she was saying this 25 years ago or whatever it was, and now it's clearer than ever. Yeah, I, I, I think Michael's point 
about fatherlessness is really, really important, and it was something that was overlooked in uh, Emba's piece and also in a lot of the progressive commentary around this issue. But what was interesting, while it didn't play a big role in, in her piece, Emba also did a, a recorded a video um, for the Washington Post that had some uh, man-on-the-street interviews in Washington, D.C., so by no means a scientific sample. But uh, she asked them, who are, who are your male role models? These are all men. She asked, who are your male role models? Every single one of them said their father or their grandfather. Um, so, mm-hmm. so it, it, it's, it's clear, it, it's clear yeah. that that is, who, who else? yeah, it's clear that that is, that that is really, really important. Um, I would also say, you know, uh, that I think there's a problem, uh, with the decline of religion, uh, among a lot of people. I think if you, if you, if you're not raised and in, in taught, uh, you know, with the, the perfect example of, of Jesus Christ, but also the flawed examples of the apostles of, of David, of Moses, of um, of Joshua, of Nehemiah. I mean, uh, I think uh, you know, I think that uh, even people who are within the church oftentimes are not really taught um, a lot of this stuff uh, uh, adequately, and um, that has led to problems within the church of defining masculinity in a way that's that can be that can be a problem uh, that 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 strays from from what, what scripture actually teaches. Um, so, so I think there's there's a, a problem there as well that I don't think it's a lot of play. But one of the interesting things about Emba's piece, uh, and this I think is really, really important to remember, is that there has always been a conversation about uh, a problem with masculinity. She goes back to the 1800s, talks about, you know, in the early 1900s, uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt was very big on this. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Robert Baden Powell starting the Boy Scouts was a big part of this, right? Rudyard Kipling wrote about this all the time, and so uh, all of these, and a lot of it's framed in the same way. It's framed in the it's framed in the idea of oh, if a war happens, we're not going to have the the requisite mm-hmm. men to go mm-hmm. fight it, and all of this stuff, and all of these guys complaining about this in the nineteen in the early nineteen hundreds, and then World War Two comes along, and somehow well, we managed, right? Yeah, but um, they, they, so. So it's, it's, I, I, so I think maybe more tragic than that, though, Dominic. I mean, like they're having this. They talk about this crisis of men, and then they put them all in Flanders Fields. I mean, like I mean, oh yeah, no, it's horrible. It, yeah. It's a horrible waste of life, and um, you know, I <laughs> I very much worry about some of the more crazy voices you hear, you know, in the manosphere on on the web who kind of wish for cleansing or sanctifying conflict again. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. No, it's, so, it's, uh, it's a terrible problem. And I, I think, um, and I think it's just important to keep in mind that problems that we see with masculinity are not new. Um, I think, you know, Charlie mentioned earlier, you know, human nature doesn't change. Um, and, and, and that's why I think, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it always is weird in these conversations because it's never quite clear when the good old days were, when, when was it that, that masculinity was, was right. And what, when, when, when did we stray from that? Or when was it even, better um uh, I, I think there's you know there are obviously serious problems today you know the the work that nick eberstadt does and that richard reeves do are some of the most important social science work that that's going on today um and and they're pointing to very real problems but it's just important to remember they're not new problems and uh, a lot of them have um uh and and and, and so to sort of fear that this is going to be uh, you know, this time it's different. This time it's different. I, I, I just, I just, I'm not, I'm not convinced of that. If I so, could combine yeah. Dominic's observation about 
this being a timeless concern and Michael's point about Flanders in The Road to Wigan Pier, which was published in 1937, Orwell asks, where are the monstrous men with chests like barrels and moustaches like the wings of eagles who strode across my childhood's gaze 20 or 30 years ago, buried, I suppose, in the Flanders mud? And he goes on to say that the English in the Great War carefully selected the million best men in England and slaughtered them, largely mm-hmm. before they had had time to breed. That's not to say this isn't an issue, but you do pick this up. Yeah, and you know, when were the good old days? Was it when the, was it when the Civil War veterans uh, all became alcoholics and were beating their wives? Um, you know, th- this was the, there's lots of examples in, in history of just really terrible things. And so uh, I, as someone who's you know, not married and, and not a father. I found uh, Jim Garrity's piece uh, for the magazine and in, in our uh, uh, manliness issue that we had uh, for Father's Day. I found that to be a really, really interesting piece because he, one of the points he makes in there is, you know, basically you don't know how great fatherhood is until you actually do it. Um, and as a proposition, if it's if it's sort of described to you beforehand, it doesn't really sound that great. But once you actually are, are in it and are doing it, it's 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 an incredibly rewarding thing. And it, it it reminded me of a similar argument that Russ Roberts has made in his recent book called Wild Problems, where he talks about that exact same thing. Where if you try to approach this with sort of a rationalistic problem-solving attitude, um, you're going to be really uh, really disappointed. Um, but if you go at it with um, uh, an attitude of you know, well, it, you know, you kind of have to you have to go through this in order to to understand it. Um, I, I think that's a lot more a lot more useful and productive. So, MBDX, a question to you: In your view, the situation of men and this this issue with masculinity will improve in the medium term? Yes or no? No. Uh- no, because institutions are increasingly feminized and run for for women and will continue to be so for a long time, uh, including the churches. Um, and yeah, and, and the I think one of the key elements uh, to solving this is not just finding like what is the use of men, but uh, celebrating men in them in themselves, right? That they, um, it's not like um, men aren't just built to protect, provide, sacrifice, but also for the glory that comes with it, right? Like my, you know, like there is something uh, almost like I think of my father-in-law who has worked his body very hard in industrial work for five decades created unbelievable value in the market, provided for family, saw four children married off. All of them have children now. So he's surrounded by grandchildren. And there is something, you know, he's self-effacing, funny, uh, hilarious, and, you know, uh, could be easily passed over. But at the same time, having accomplished all of that, he is something like, a king sitting in a, in a throne when he's at home. Mm-hmm. He's, mm-hmm. There's a, a glory attendant upon him uh, that the culture doesn't see right now, but I can see it. And if the culture could, mm. could recover that vision, I think men would be a lot better. Hmm. That's, uh, that's very well said. Charlie? 
I think it's going to get worse and then I think it's going to get better because I think ultimately we need balance in our culture. I think we need men and women. And I think that you'll see some changes on both the supply side and the demand side. I think the men who are sitting around doing nothing will improve themselves and there will be great efforts to encourage them to do so. And I think that our present anti-men strains will start to disappear because, well, we need balance in our society and it's a bad thing when it gets out of whack and we'll notice that. Dominic? Um, No, because men are fallen and sinful. I'm also going to say... No, it's not going to get better uh, in the medium term. With that, MBD, you've been reading the Tintin books. Yeah, so um, you know, I've I I have bothered all sorts of editors, listeners with my endless list of little little hobbies I engage in, but I try to keep up with everything I've you know fallen in love with uh, in my life, and one of them was studying French in high school and in college and just trying to barely keep up, uh, maybe an A2 level. I bought the Tintin books in French, uh, because they're, they're geared towards, you know, a child's reading level. Uh, they're very visual and they're very enjoyable and they are a, um, a portrait into, uh, a worldview from the past that is in itself very entertaining and that we were joking about before recording this, uh, the Tintin books aren't entirely politically correct as Tintin adventures around the world. Um, but anyway, they're, they're a huge literary delight, uh, and you should get them in English or French or whatever language you like them in. Dominic, you've been transfixed by this cricket tournament. Yes. Uh, major league cricket, uh, is a new, uh, league that is, uh, has started in the United States. It's T20 cricket, so it's not the uh, five-day test cricket, but it takes about three hours, just about the same as a baseball game. And um, a little, no, a little more, a little more now, Dominic. Yeah, I mean, hey, it's our, you know, there's there's a uh, there's a um, there, yeah, there's 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 real poetry in, in test uh, I'll, cricket. I'll watch but, cricket when they when they uh, when they when they have a pitch clock too. Well, they actually have a better time in ruling cricket, I think, than Major League Baseball does. They have a thing called the overrate, which is where they um, they set uh, they set a set a timer at the start of the match, and then they keep track of um, as the balls go by of how quickly you're going, and then uh, uh, towards the end of the match, if you're going too slow, they will they will penalize you, as opposed to uh, oh, in baseball okay. where we do it in every single instant, and so we're stopping the game to speed up the game, but instead. Uh, you know, they make it so that you can take a little bit longer in a high stress situation and then speed up in a lower stress situation and it averages out in the end. Um, so, uh, but, uh, but yeah, no, it'll be, it, it's, it's interesting. They're playing this tournament, uh, mostly in Dallas. They're playing a little bit in North Carolina as well. And, um, it's a new, new league this year and, uh, stay tuned, uh, because, um, uh, I'll be writing some more about it for the print magazine, uh, in, in upcoming issues. And Charlie, it's only July, but you're already ready for the football season and have been watching these Jaguar videos, The Hunt. The Hunt, produced by the Jacksonville Jaguars. Those of you who are NFL fans may be familiar with Hard Knocks. Well, the Jaguars have never been chosen for Hard Knocks. This season, Hard Knocks chose the Jets, apparently against their will, which seems to be a very Jets thing to have done. But the Jaguars have stepped into 
The Void and started producing their own series, which they're releasing on YouTube. It's called The Hunt. There's been three episodes already. It's pretty good. Certainly got me fired up for the coming year. So I went to uh, Megan Kelly's July 4th party. MBD was there as well. This is really my platonic ideal of a July 4th party. They're colonial costumes. There was a dramatic reading of the Declaration of Independence with MBD bringing it home in just an uh, uh, incredibly compelling fashion. There was lots of beer, uh, cocktails, and importantly, a marching band. It was really, uh, uh, Megan and Doug put on a, a fantastic show. And then the, the most wonderful thing about it was just the, the hospitality of the Brunt family who are just uh, terrific and, and marvelous and very warm uh, people. So um, uh, both of us, I think I can speak for, for both of us, uh, MBD and, and I and our families had a wonderful time with that. It's time for our editor's picks. MBD! What's your pick? My pick is Armand White's absolutely consensus-defying trashing of Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible series. I have always loved these movies. I thought they're great. They're great movies. The brilliant popcorn entertainment, but um, yeah, this is uh, the last one was one of the best best action movies I've ever seen. I think. uh, Roman White says we are reducing cinema to gimmicky sensationalism, <laughs> and uh, especially when Macquarie's repetition is this witlessly conventional. Um, and he compares them as like just barely better than Fast and Furious. Um, and uh, I just, I, it's just this is just the latest in my appreciation of uh, Armand White uh, beating it from his own drum. It's amazing. Dominic, what's your pick? My pick is a uh, brief corner post from Charlie uh, called What is Kamala Harris Trying to Say? He's responding to uh, a post that uh, Noah did asking that question. Um, but uh, Charlie writes she's, it. She's trying, say, she's trying to say we need infrastructure to get people where they need to go. That's right. Is there, that's is right. About that? Charlie writes it in, in perfect uh, Kamala Harris speech. Um, and if you can just read the words that he has written in her voice, you can just hear all of it coming out of her mouth. And it's, it's, it's very, uh, it's very entertaining. Charlie, what's your pick? My pick is Jonathan Adler's magazine piece on the Supreme Court, in which Jonathan points out that the Roberts Court still is overturning precedent at a slower clip than did previous Supreme Courts. And that's, the legal establishment didn't say a word when we had courts like the Warren Court that were overturning precedents every day and inventing new doctrines out of whole cloth and that whether or not people like this fact that the Roberts Court is more respectful of precedent than its predecessors, it's true anyway. So my pick is MBD's piece after populism that hits on the topic of masculinity, which we were just discussing, and says that the, the new a big goal should be creating great men. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National View podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or countless game without the express written permission of National View magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Dominic. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Tommy John and Maiden 
cookware, and thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.